Hey Rockheads, this is Carl with an update on Music to Code By. On January 4th, 2016, I released the 11th Music to Code By track, Gold. That's right, there are now 11 25-minute tracks, including the original three. And you can download them all in one big zip file for less than 50 bucks at mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1242, with guest Clemens Vasters. Recorded Friday, December 18th, 2015. And it's time for .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. And I'm Richard Campbell. Here we are. You know, every time we start this show, just before we start recording, we hold our breath for like five seconds. We take a room tone, right? It's about a, making a really good sounding yeah, show. Yeah, sure. And every time we do that, I watch the timer on my recorder as it counts down the five, mm-hmm. ten seconds. And I'm reminded of friends of mine who are, who, who recreationally free dive. Have you heard of free diving? Free diving as free in diving. Term- they don't take scuba gear with them. Right. They just hold their breath. Hold their breath. Yeah. And one of my friends can hold his breath for four minutes. So while I'm watching five to ten That's seconds insane. go by while we're getting ready, I just keep reminding myself, you know, Andrew can do this for four minutes. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> That's not, he's not right in the head. Well, you know, let's think about what he what he does is he dives deep under the water while holding his breath. <laughs> it probably gets better with practice because you kill so many brain cells every time that you just, you know. You just stop you're worrying just about things. dumber Maybe and dumber. <laughs> uh, actually, really great developer. But, you know, his hobby is free diving. Yeah. All right. Well, any anyway, I got something interesting uh, and a little bit appropriate for today's show with Better Know Framework, so roll the music. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, you guys use Slack, right? We all use Slack. Yeah, I we love, all use Slack, I think. Love Slack. Yeah. Well, there's a, a sort of a, a bot interface that you can program against, but... It's it's not the easiest thing in the world, but somebody pulled off a bot kit. If you go to botkit.pwop.me, you'll see this is uh, the the GitHub user is Howdy AI, Howdy AI, <laughs> <laughs> and the bot kit is building blocks for building bots. That's so let great. me just read it. Bot kit designed to ease the process of designing and running useful, creative, or just plain weird bots and other types of applications that live inside Slack. It provides a semantic interface to sending and receiving messages, and therein lies the the, the connection here, mm-hmm. uh, so that developers can focus on creating novel applications and experiences instead of dealing with API endpoints. So BotKit features a comprehensive set of tools that deal with Slack's integration platform and allows developers to build both custom integrations for their team as well as public Slack button applications that can be run from a central location and be used by many teams at the same time. So there you go. That's cool. 
It's kind of neat. It makes me I mean, almost I mean, just speak to just how successful Slack is that there are ecosystems growing up around building code for Slack. Yeah. I mean, it's frictionless communication. It's just yeah. wonderful. Just one of those things. Just one of them things. Awesome, anyway, nice that's time. what I got. Yep. Who's talking to us, Richard? You know, we've done a lot of shows on messaging lately, uh, different stacks of stuff. And one of the shows recently was 1204, the one we did in October with Demis Bellet when we talked about service stack. Right. And what do you, what do you, Demis was excited that day. He was what really he excited. Said? And he was, he was talking fast. There's a couple of folks who said, wow, I was struggling to keep up. It's like, that's why there's a slow speed mode. Well, he had we been working on it. this stuff for years and not talking about it. And then here it is. It's all new and he's got to cover it all in an hour. Right. And he, and yeah, he had a lot to say. Yeah. And, uh, but I got to read this comment from Matt. Uh, his last name starts with a C. He didn't give me any more than that. And what I, what I'm laughing about, of course, is that he did this entire thing in one paragraph. And I read it, you can sort of read it excitedly as well. I think he was almost going as fast as Demis was when he said, Service Stack single-handedly kept me excited about .NET. I've been using this incredible framework for four plus years, and it has never disappointed. After listening to this podcast, my biggest frustration is how much was not said still about this framework. It's simply impossible to pack it all into one hour. Yeah. The scope of what Service Stack accomplishes is simply immense. Over the years, I've used Service Stack inside SharePoint. Okay, so you hate yourself. I get that. <laughs> uh, to expose restful ser services uh, as instead of ASMX and bloated SOAP APIs mm -hmm. to build web apps using the server stack Razor implementation as an alternative to ASP.NET MVC and as a backend to multiple AngularJS single page applications and as a backend to Xamarin apps, Swift apps, Android, Java apps using the add reference feature that Demis talks about in the podcast to document APIs using the service stack Swagger, which is an additional plugin, mm -hmm. to migrate database schemas using service stack Fluent Migrator plugin, and as an ORM to talk to SQL Server, MySQL, and Postgres inside of WordPress, inside of LinkPad for running Windows service management scripts, with Redis for caching, and even with MongoDB. My head hurts all over again. In an implementation on a hosted MongoLab service. Yeah. From mobile app development to web development to server development, it's amazing to me how much surface area service stack covers and how much use I've been able to get out of it. I'm now using the server sent events implementation as well in a pretty large Angular JS app, which we migrated from a Firebase implementation, fully integrated with Active Directory authentication. I'm also looking forward to using the new desktop app packaging implementation strategy from Service Stack for some new field worker software in the queue to deploy desktop apps across multiple platforms, including Mac and Windows. I feel like Service Stack was built for me, and it has been a great fit for many enterprise applications I've built over the years. It was and remains ahead of its time. In its simplistic approach, pluggability, and extensibility, it makes .NET feel as it should. I'll be doing .NET as long as products like Service Stack are around. Yeah. Yeah, I have nothing to say. <laughs> it's just it's, like, okay. Like I said, my head hurts all over again. I mean, that <sighs> it's just an amazing platform. Yeah. And and uh, and clearly Matt has taken it on all sorts of directions and had lots of success with it. You can't can't resist the enthusiasm that was here. And I think Demis uh, personified that. So it doesn't make it doesn't surprise me at all that a fan of his work pretty much speaks the same way. Yeah, right. <laughs> So, Matt, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of the social media. We publish every show. It is Google Plus and Facebook. If you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. 
And of course, you can tweet us. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. We love tweets. We eat them for dinner. <laughs> and uh, that brings us to Clemens, an old friend. Clemens Vasters is product architect for the Azure messaging platform, which includes service bus in the cloud and on-premises, as well as Azure event hubs. He and his team also created Azure notification hubs and Azure IoT hub, which are now with dedicated teams within Microsoft. He's participating in several standardization efforts, including guiding Microsoft's messaging engagement strategy in OASIS. And he is a member of the OPC UA Working Group and the OPC Foundation's Technical Advisory Council. Welcome, Clemens. Hello, Carl. Hello, Richard. Hey, buddy. Can you kind of define some of those acronyms for us? What's OASIS? Uh, I I put them there so I could. Great. Um, OASIS. OASIS is the uh, standardization organization where um, AMQP, the Advanced Message Queuing Protocol, is being defined, and also MQTT, uh, the uh, the IBM sourced um, telemetry transfer protocol, is being uh, uh, defined and standardized. Okay. So it's a standardization organization that uh, has been founded. Uh, I don't know exactly when it was, but uh, some ten years ago, uh, kind of as with the uh, Web Services wave, I believe. It's SOAP 5.0. <laughs> did, I, did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. I didn't mean um, to offend. That's that's okay. That's it's fine. It's part of our history. Yeah. And and it's as much as people bash it, uh, and it's hip to say, yeah, you know, soap and it that's old stuff. It the thing is it works yeah. and everybody uh in in enterprise somehow um still uses it. Yeah. Uh, because uh, it is a way to do um, you know, communication across the wire in a fairly easy fashion where you get everything generated for you. Yeah. And, and as much as, uh, REST services are, have greater flexibility, uh, there's something to be said about uh, being able to generate uh, a proxy on the other side and just use it. I totally so, agree. Uh, so people, so our customers still use it, um, in the enterprise specifically. Um, and there is, um, um, it's fine. Yeah, it's good. Nothing wrong but with Oasis it. owns WS Trust as well. If I mean, if you really want to make fun of something, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then well, they also own OData, which is you know just a big pile of awesome. Big pile of awesome. Yeah. The, so Oasis is kind of the the organization an organization where the actual work happens of of creating standards. Right. Um. It, it's a it's a two stage it's a three stage process really. There's some initial work that's it's being done either in a company or in some um, um, smaller working group between companies. Um, as it happened with AMQP, for instance, or also as it happened with the, the WSTAR stack and, and MQTT. Mm-hmm. Then it goes into Oasis, which is a more formal standards organization. And then they have processes around how you do things in particular with you know, how documents are being created, how the um, the standards org and the uh, technical committee, et cetera, is being run and they know how to set up votes. And so there's a formal process around this and it's a neutral ground. And then once they're done with that work, that usually then goes to, um, if desired, um, goes off to um, ISO, um, ISO or IEC, um, typically through the ISO path, where it then gets standardized internationally. And then the the, uh, national standards committees um, get their hands on it and uh, then work it into an international standard, which then is 
usually a differently formatted version uh, with some additions um, or changes, uh, but very often not technical changes, but really just formal changes um, to the technical output that has been happening in Oasis. Hey, Rockheads. As Richard and I travel the world for the Azure World Tour, we're telling people all about our dev-centric friends at Stackify. They've been awarded PC Magazine Editor's Choice for Application Performance Management, stating, and I quote, The depth of application information provided by Stackify totally outshine the other products in this category, end quote. Because Stackify so successfully integrates errors, logs, and metrics into a core APM Plus tool, it's a must-have for .NET developers, which is why PC Mag's Paul Farrell calls it one of the best infrastructure management services of 2015. Try Stackify now for free, and they'll ship you their coveted Developers Against Humanity card game. Just activate your account. Use the link bit.ly slash netrocks to build better apps faster and get your free game. With so many standards and products and services, especially in Azure, available around messaging, uh, you know, it becomes more and more confusing to figure out what to use when. And I'm hoping that's what we can get into a little bit here. Yeah. Yeah. Like, for example, the, the IoT Hub, um, Azure IoT <laughs> Hub, you know, how, how do I know I need that when, uh, you know, there are other solutions I can put together from pieces that exist, uh, everywhere else? Uh, well, that's a good question. The, the way how we're thinking about the platform per se, and IoT is a great, um, example for this. Um, IoT is, uh, what's interesting is, is to see how parallel the developments are across um, some some companies um, you can look at who are building IoT platforms in mm-hmm. specifically the big ones so Amazon and IBM and, and Microsoft um, there's a lot of parallel developments which are which were independent but not a coincidence right for instance you look at IBM and where IBM has come from in terms of IoT they now have this IoT foundation and they came up with the with the MQTT protocol which is something that they repurposed out of product project and product work that they've done um in in SCADA systems so the the I, the IoT story inside of my uh, inside of IBM grew up out of messaging and out of analytics now um and that's how their team for and for us, the story is very similar. Um, the uh, the IoT effort grew out of the messaging team. My team drove that, and um, of course now also we have uh, you know the Cortana analytics suite mm. with all the those analytics services, including HD Insight um, for Hadoop, um, all the adaptation that we have there. So it's messaging plus analytics plus all the other capabilities are the core of the IoT offer, and that's the same. Um, for IBM and it's very similar looking at uh, Amazon. So they're all coming from the same direction. Right. It's like the messaging people, the messaging people have been kind of dr- spearheading this. And then the analytics people c- get into play as soon as uh, there's a way f- to flow the data to them. So it's sort of like a package of existing services wrapped up in, and it's almost like guidance saying, use these. Is it's, that- I would, it's, it's a reference. So there's, there's two parts to this whole story. There's, um, there's a reference architecture. Um, and the reference architecture is effectively a model of t- how to think about composing your services. And it starts on 
um, if you want to go from left to right, so to speak, um, it starts with the devices per se and, and everything you can, can do on the devices and how you connect on the device to mm. the, from the devices to um, a local concentrator, which we call the gateway. Yeah. Um, and then, or, or potentially con connect from the devices straight to a cloud system. Mm -hmm. um, how do you flow data um, into the cloud system? How does the cloud system actually deal with the influx of you know, data from thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of devices? And how does it kind of buffer that data up before it can be processed um, yeah. either in, in real time or um, um, a call path, which means get stored and then, then analyzed. Yeah. And then after that follows, uh, there's a gateway por portion and then after that follows the analytics and, and the compute portion. That's kind of, and then, you know, through visualization, but then the systems become more normal. It's an IoT specific piece, which is really about how do we think about distribution of work between the devices and the, and the cloud. Um, and uh, how do we go and think about connectivity between those? And IoT Hub is a specific piece that is doing effectively three things. It's the first thing is it's creating connectivity, um, or it's helping with connectivity, and it has native protocol support. Mm -hmm. um, for right now, in the public preview, there's HTTP S and uh, MQP as the the protocol support. Okay. Um, there's going to be more. And there's MQTT as a gateway that we ship as open source that uh, you can also use and kind of compose with it. And it's a think of that gateway as an example for how to add other protocols to it. So there's yeah. uh, because there's a myriad of different protocols specifically in the verticals. It's not going to be the only one, um, but it's a way how to build a scalable gateway, and you can go go and very easily plug new protocols into that thing. Um, and so IoT Hub creates connectivity, it creates identity management for those devices. And then another thing that's going to be added that uh, we have uh, I've hinted at is uh, there's going to be deeper capabilities in terms of management. So uh, we talked to Jason Zander about this at the mm -hmm. intersection uh, last year. And, and one of the questions I kept bumping up against was, and, and maybe you can provide some clarity here too, is that, um, you know, how you store your data and where you store your data seems to be really, really important when you're dealing with, you know, massive, massive amounts of data, and especially in an IoT situation where you typically want to look at, um, I would almost say geographically clustered sensor data. Do you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? So you're looking at mm -hmm. a site, you're looking at an, a, a state, maybe you're looking at a country, but, you know, usually it's a smaller portion of that. And so wouldn't you want to sort of have this sort of graph idea, you know, much like the internet is a graph and router system of TCP IP, where you push the intelligence and the querying ability out to the edge. And and how does that, I mean, that being able to do that requires an architecture that I haven't been able to nail down yet. So there are... Um as as always, various schools of thoughts and also various um, a variety of different scenarios. Let me paint a few for you. Sure, please. There is um, the first one. I would say is the centralized centralization approach, where you go and have devices that are just dis distributed out in the field, and you basically just go and flow data into a central place and analyze the data there. That is um, very comfortable um, because you have all the data in a single system. It doesn't need to be a single data center, but it's a single single 
control domain, if you will. So it's a single place that you own where all the data is and you get to call where, uh, where work happens, but it's mostly all in the cloud. It's one, one thing that you have control over. Um, depending on how many, how many devices you have. Right. Um, so we're, we're talking, there's, we can talk about a hundred. And these are water pumps, which are some somewhere in in some place. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can talk about a hundred thousand or a hundred million if you're talking about a and really vehicle, really what it comes down to is the amount of data, right, and the frequency yes. of that data flow, and how and often so, you want to query it. Yeah. And so, so there's there's hot path analytics, which is um, you know, data you want to evaluate in near real time, and that data requires raw data, and and a lot of a lot of real-time analytics happens on on raw data that you will never again look at otherwise. Mm. So hmm. there's signal information that you get, which you will go and crunch through as it comes in, but you will never store the raw data because it's not worth it. Got it. Or it's um, um, just not economical to trans- transfer it. So that's why you get into so specifically in those analysis cases you get into the you get to the point where you're going to think about whether you want to move that data into the cloud or whether you want to go and shift the point of processing out to the device per se or to a gateway which can go and do this because the devices will always emit more data than you than you will care to ever look at again mm. um, later in cold storage. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the real time path is about taking information out of the I, I i say there's protons and electrons and then there's <laughs> photons <Yeah>. Pro- <laughs> that's great <laughs> so protons and electrons is the data you care to store on disk yeah photons because it matters the da- did i say that that's wrong i'm serious because it matters oh. <laughs> because it matters wonderful <laughs> physics jokes uh, and and the photons is the data that's only worth something while it's fresh and while it's in flight. The real time right. telemetry kind of thing. It's the, it's the real time telemetry which is which is useful in an undistilled way. Yeah. So so whether you want to run an algorithm on that data um, in the device or in the gateway or on the on the cloud side mm-hmm. really depends on the resolution you need um, and the um, also, the f- kind of the freshness of the algorithm, algorithm is, if you will. Yeah. If you have an algorithm which is doing pre analysis on the device, well, you have to go and update that code somewhere somehow if you want to make a change. If you will have so so, it's easier for you to do this update in the cloud, likely because you have a single point of deployment. Mm-hmm. But now you're paying for that flexibility with having to haul more data across the wire. Sure. So I think what we're going to see eventually is um, agility in that way so that you can go and deploy um, these anal- analytics rules uh, flexibly so that it can execute either on the, on the device set or at a gateway site or in the, cl- or in the fog or in the cloud. In the fog. So, I like it. I've never fog- heard that term before, but I love it. So fog is something that the Cisco people have been coming up with um, a while ago. <laughs> um, they, they've been popularizing this. The way how the way you think you can think about fog is fog is um, processing in the network. Mm. There is um, so th- let's take let's go through those four four different stages. Mm-hmm. First is data data on the processing and storage on the device. Mm-hmm. 
Second is processing storage on the gateway. And the right. gateway is the gateway is 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 bridging a local network yep. or a local network scope with the internet. Right. This could also be a network switch, a, a network bridge. And network bridge with that, for instance, is you have a, a mobile phone and the mobile phone talks to the base station. Mm-hmm. That base station is might also be called a gateway. Sure. Fog is is compute capacity, compute capabilities that are sitting inside the network per se. So relatively close, like a CDN, if you will. All right. It's so you have a CDN notion for storage, and fog is really a CDN notion for compute work. Okay. And if and we're going to see more and more of that coming up, and it's going to be relevant. Um, I think it's going to be mostly first seen um, in broad deployment in spaces like um, uh, traffic management and autonomous driving. And so it's going to be in automotive is where I believe it's going to matter quite a bit. Now, I've completely bought into your your rule about uh, devices being clients only. What about the gateway? What do you mean? Rel- well, relative you know, to- so if you're going to do query, if you're going to put and store data in that gateway for your local, let's say, 400 sensors, you know, that mm-hmm. they're all storing data at that gateway, and, y- and you're not storing that stuff in the cloud, but you want to do some, you know, analysis on that via the web, doesn't th- that gateway have to expose itself to the internet as, ah. a, as a server, as a service? So, um Yes, and many devices will, but that doesn't require that it's exposed to the internet. Okay. Um, this this goes back to um, there's another acronym I haven't explained out of the uh, um, introduction, so let me bring okay. that up. Um, that is OPC. Yeah. Because OPC UA is a um, fairly interesting, um, even though quite vertical protocol stack. Um, that I'm helping with um, to extend with uh, with PubSub capabilities. So the OPC Foundation is a organization that has 450, um, probably a little bit more now, members from the industrial automation and industrial and machine manufacturing mm-hmm. um, community. So it's a it's an industrial organization. And OPC UA is a communication standard for industrial devices and industrial means stuff that sits on the shop floor in factories and plants. So are we talking post SCADA technology here? Um, we're, yeah. So OPC is a way to feed into SCADA systems, right? But it's also a way to go and control, to control devices. Think of it as WMI for, um, uh, industrial systems. That's the closest to to it, but it has a way to go and flow data continuously out of the device. It's an interoperability standard that um, is making devices, industrial devices, um, interoperable above the real time bus la- layer. Right. So it's not it's not the real time bus layer, but it's the the non real time information that's being exchanged. It's still fast, but it's not real time in the sense of of industrial real time is, which means that. If you say one microsecond, you mean one microsecond, not right. not zero point nine, not one point one. You mean one. It it strikes me that this is all stuff scrambling to catch up with IoT, right? Like it it, it is it. So this is the IoT. Yeah. Right. Um, the so the reason why this I'm is the thing that was up, here before we started calling it IoT. <laughs> yes. So that so this is yeah. So this is the important thing. 
the industrial industrial automation folks have been doing IoT for the last 30 years. Sure. Right. They just haven't been doing it well. They well, well they have they have been doing it they have been doing it um, pretty successfully um, because uh, uh, we are able to um, use products um, you know yeah. anything you may you touch right now <laughs> has probably been made by some digital components has been controlled by some digital component in some machine sure i'm I'm sort of referring to the um, security problems that SCADA has and why oh, people are oh, rushing yeah. to replace those systems at least so, where it's the ones that care about security so thank you thank you for bringing that up because that kind of ties us back to the point that we we're, that was that we were starting to make. So the reason why I bring this up is um, that the principle for how um, those OPC UA devices are going to be attached to cloud systems is also through outbound communication only. And there's going to be a, a way to do a, a control action on those devices, basically reaching into them um, through that outbound socket. So one of the contributions that we're making into the standard is to help kind of uh, getting the uh, getting the VPN out of the story because VPN is um, a symptom of an old attitude that people have um, in the industrial world, but that's also also something that extends into very many different IoT kind of scenarios um, where people are still securing the perimeter. And the perimeter security is very similar. The, the security that they have in their systems is very similar to the security they have to their perimeters, to their perimeter of the factory. Right. So you have four walls and they have a door. And the same thing is you have a network and then you have a VPN gateway into it. It's the same model. And it's just edge once, security. Hmm. Just edge security. And as, as soon as you're in, um, you, no um, security. yeah, you have a problem. Yeah. And so, and so, so as soon as you're in, then you're able to touch everything and to work with everything because there's no further security. Because, but that's an attitude that people have carried from, uh, you know, from when they started. Like security right. was never a big topic, so they didn't do it poorly. They just did do what they've done before. They'd secured the perimeter. There was there weren't as many people trying to hack, basically. Yeah, and also the systems were not. The systems were not such that you had to deal with um, visitors. So I think mm. one of the big changes that happens now, and that's the I think that's starting to change the attitude, is first of all the data needs to be um, f- funneled out of these production environments for analytics um, and for inter- for interactions with other systems. Um, this funneling out of, of telemetry data is something that can be facilitated by stuff like air gaps and there's data diodes, which are crazy d- uh, devices, which uh, provide physical protection against um, um, a way to get the data to get into the network. A data diode is a, is a device that has a physical separation between an inside network and an outside network where there's literally a, a, a way to transfer data just in one way, just mm. with physical measures. It's not even a device in like, there's no coupled electric wires between the inside and the outside. Ah. It's, it's crazy. It's crazy stuff. It's r- super expensive. And, but none of these, none of these strategies work anymore because with the IOT, we get nomadic devices showing up also on the factory floor. Nomadic devices meaning stuff that is Moving just around. like bring you, 
bring your own device, yeah. right? But now it's bring your own container, bring your own component, bring your own right. everything because yeah. you, everything that you're going to be building, bringing into the factory and bringing into the into the production process is now going to be a device. And you can't trust those things yep. because hey. they're coming from someone else. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is. Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, it's time to unveil my new IoT Chaos Monkey. Ooh. I call it Fog Blaster. It's <laughs> 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 either Fog Blaster or Fog Horn, but Fog Horn doesn't sound half as <laughs> nice as uh, Blaster. Okay, well, actually, it's yeah. time to give away a Music to Code by Audio Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, let me tell you about Music to Code by, if you don't already know. It's a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized, quiet and groovy instrumentals scientifically designed to promote focus. It will get you into a state of flow and keep you there. .NET Rocks fans are being much more productive with Music to Code by. See what all the fuss is about. Go to mtcb.pwop.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Matt Richards. Right, congratulations, Matt. Yay. Got a clap for you, sir. All right. Got a clap from Clemens Vasters there, too. Yes. Nice. Way to go, Matt. And uh, Matt just won the Music to Code by Audio Collection. That's all 10, currently 10, tracks. Oh, 250 minutes of music. That's almost a whole day. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to sign up to win. Clemens, it's your turn. You got $5,000 US. What are you buying? Um, I might want to buy. Uh, it's one thing that I'm looking at at uh, eBay um, every once in a while, scouting around. I really want to have a B52 instrument panel for my office. <laughs> like a bomber. Specifically yeah, a B52, though. A B-52 junkyard, boneyard instrument panel, yes. Huh. Like and, from a real, from a, you know, you don't mean a simulation. No, no. I mean to have, have the instrument panel of the actual thing. Wow. And, and of course. Go for a cockpit panel or the defensive systems panel. Like there's so many good choices there. Yeah. I think I want to have the, the actual, um, the pilots. Wow. And would you wire the gauges up to like, you know, no. your message counts or <laughs> no 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 i just well, wanna, next I just, problem is which version man what are they up to the h or the i variant now like the, the original h. version would have been all analog gauges today they've got a bunch of nfds on it uh not this many it's still a pretty old airplane but um yeah i, I think i think i'm okay with having a d model or uh, you know whatever is still in the, in the scrapyard but mm. i'll i would settle i would set probably settle for a lesser um, but it's, 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 I have my, my, my office here is, uh, that I'm sitting in right now. Um, if you walk into this room, you will not think I'm uh, a software guy <laughs> because it looks like a little aviation museum. I have like scale, uh, one to do hundreds, a bunch of airplanes. I'm looking at a, um, an XB 70 Valkyrie and, uh, I have a B 52 and I have, uh, all the, all the Boeing airplanes, some Airbuses. Wow. So, uh, Oh, I found yeah. an, an I found a, a picture from the Dryden Flight Center of a B fifty two B cockpit. So that's like circa nineteen sixty, man. 
It's uh, gorgeous. The, it's, the B, the B is actually earlier. Yeah, it's a very the last, early. The last H mod, the last H models that are currently still flying, um, were built in in 1960. So they yeah. have been in the air for fifty for fifty five years. There, all of those airplanes are older than the crews that are on them. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a I'm a big aviation. F- aviation geek so but realistically i think with the five thousand dollars i would buy um a new camera for taking pictures of airplanes slr uh yes yeah yeah like an actual camera i'm i think the the new little ones without the without the um, um mirrors and stuff they're interesting i might get another one but i think i want to have one of the canon 5d mark Three or I think the four is out now. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think I, so I, I need think to burn I five have grand easy on a body of that caliber. They, they, those bodies by themselves are twenty five or three thousand bucks. And if you don't spend at least a thousand on a lens, you're making a mistake. Hmm. Yeah, I have I have uh, I have lenses for uh, for Canon, and so I'm bought into that ecosystem. Yeah. And What's so, your current body? I have a um, I have a sixty D. Oh, nice. The sixty D is great because. Um, it's uh, pretty quick, and also the APS-C sensor. So the smaller the smaller sensor gives you um, the crop factor on it, kind of the way the optics work. I have a, a four hundred millimeter lens, and I have a mo- multiplier, and then the crop factor. I can go and look up uh, straight up into the sky from my house, and I can go and get um, airplanes at thirty five thousand feet. Um, in very nice resolution kind of into a quarter of the picture, which still gives me like three megapixels wow. uh, full frame on, uh, on those airplanes. And I have a the, pretty, pretty that's like a milli arc. Like how do you hold the camera? Yeah, still really? enough? You must have it's, a tripod or I, something. It, no, it's all technique. Wow. <laughs> you, you, just, you just, you just learn how to, you just learn how to do it. So awesome. it's, do you, do, you like, do this while riding a unicycle as well? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the stack, has, the stack has like 950 millimeters. Um, yeah, um, as I have it, and I still sh- can shoot very nice photos, and I have uh, some of them on Flickr. My Flickr account is uh, Clemens V, so there have a bunch of public photos there uh, of uh, mostly well, you, of aviation. You've got a whole bunch of pictures now that are like um, Wiki Commons, like reference photos of aircraft. I am. I am a. I have a, a page on Wikimedia Commons that says avia- where I'm on the page aviation pho- photographers from Germany. Yeah. And I have like 9,000 pictures on, well, or maybe like 7,000 pictures on Wikipedia Commons. And the nice thing is, um, some other, so, some other people did the work. Like I just put them up on Flickr and then there's people who come to my account and start cataloging them and putting them into, uh, Wikimedia Commons, which is great. And all my content, um, generally is uh, all com- creative commons with attribution. So, you know, you can use those, all of my aviation and aircraft pictures as you like. As long as you say who's who they're from, and they're in in publications, online publications. I've been, uh, I have pictures in Forbes, and, and I don't know in uh, what, whatever places, and that's great fun. All right, so I, I really want to jump back to the IoT scenario here. Yes, because, uh, <laughs> I, I have not. Sorry, I am not yet got into photography like you guys have, <laughs> but I plan to someday. Anyway. Um, so let's say we have this, this architecture where 
we you you have the protons and electrons going into you know data a data repository maybe a data lake or somewhere where the data can be queried for aggregate stuff right mm-hmm. and then you have the stuff that needs to be looked at out toward the edge like you know towards a uh, you know where towards the de- closer to the devices maybe the mm-hmm. gateway or something like that what is the interface the network interface between that gateway and your cloud services is there just a sort of a one-to-one direct connection there that um that that stays open do you call the these things microservices do they call home and then check to see if there's anything like i'm really just sort of fascinated with how what the best practice is for for that connection so um there is a number of favorites that are evolving um, for the cloud to gateway or cloud to device um, um, link. Mm. And I'm speaking not only about the stuff that we have, but like what is popular in general. So there's really, it's coming out to be four protocols. Okay. And I think with those four protocols, we have everything covered that we need um, so far. I don't see anything else coming up seriously. So the first one is obviously everybody's all-time favorite HTTP, yep. um, including HTTP2. And HTTP2 is getting interesting because HTTP2 has this back-channel capability, which is really meant to um, cover this use case where uh, originally meant to cover the use case where you are requesting um data from a web a page from a website and the website already knows that if you are requesting this the index page you're going to make the following 20 requests mm. because that's what's on the index page right. is going to come back to you to re- so with http 2 you can send those 20 requests kind of the responses already before they're being asked for so you can kind of do do this push thing the the this push channel is being um that's being worked on in IATF to kind of formalize the web push thing mm-hmm. um and one of one of the guys from our team is um is uh, participating in this um to so from the Azure IoT team in um in looking at in how that can be also used for IoT because HTTP is a stack that is um, you know, ev- available everywhere. So HTTP is a contender, um, and then certainly the back channel helps. And HTTP two is very interesting because it's binary, it's multiplexed, but it still has kind of the Achilles heel somewhat that it has is that it is um, uh, biased from a client and server perspective. Like there's certain stuff that only a client can do and a server can't send a request to a client, for instance. Um, You have to go and model that in some way. So, but HTTP is a strong contender. Um, Another one is, and that's, I'm going to mention that because it's very close to HTTP, is CoAP. CoAP is a, a lightweight reformulation, so to speak, of um, of HTTP is pretty popular. Is that COAP? COAP, COAP, Constraint Application Protocol. Okay. And COAP is a is um, kind of a min- super minified um, HTTP, if you will. So it's got the same gestures. It's mm. uh, aiming to mimic HTTP, but it's um, bidirectional. So both parties can take on the same roles, and it's bound to UDP, which is something nice. that's very... Well, that's that's something that is very attractive initially because it's super lightweight speed, yeah. But people are now finding out that, and it has um, it has some uh, flow control uh, capabilities and has some has some package recovery um, um, characteristics. So they're gradually recreating TCP on top of it. That's yeah, funny, isn't it? <laughs> yes. So exactly. <laughs> so because of that, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's now a growing number of folks who are 
uh, now moving um, co-op on top of TCP, which is not standardized. Yeah. Um, sort of but, loses the benefit, doesn't it? Well, the, the problem is um, exposing a service and even more so exposing a device over UDP yeah. is super dangerous. It's very dangerous. And, it, and it's super dangerous because you can very easily flood the target. And there's no way the target can fight back because it has to look at every message. There's no indication um, in the at the at the at the pro at the protocol level of whether a a, a packet is um, valid or invalid in, in in terms of the at the transport level. You have Everybody to go. Everybody likes lightweight transports right up until you know they don't get their messages. Correct. So co-op is something that is very popular um, and it kind of grew in the in the in the um, uh, cellular mobile space. Um, it's uh, the foundation for lightweight M2M, which is something that the uh, OMA, DM, the Open Mobile Alliance uh, Device Management Group is striving. And there it's a it's a UDP is a real it's it's a good choice because you're writing on top of uh, something like GSM and GSM mm. has no problem in in moving datagrams around because it's a it's a radio platform that is okay about you know recovering datagrams so you can build an ultra reliable UDP because UDP the underlying foundational transport doesn't lose packets right so for them UDP is a good choice um, but as soon as you go into the open internet then UDP is not su such a good choice right. so th there's work going on in taking that super lightweight protocol co-op and moving it on top of TCP which then becomes a um, a very interesting lighter weight choice to HTTP and it has specifically for device scenarios and it has the advantage of not having this bias um, of um, of uh, HTTP because the it, it has a notion of roles so you can play a server and you can play a client both on the same connection and then nice. come the classic messaging protocols it's kind of you you kind of grow up from 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 that scenario um, and two of them are um, the the two that we see um, in that space is uh, MQTT and MQTT being an, a protocol that IBM started um, a long time ago and that has then gone to Oasis um, and uh, has been formalized in Oasis um, with an interesting charter of uh, uh, Oasis, the Oasis working group really not being allowed to change the input spec so that it becomes incompatible with the input spec that mm. was brought. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's kind of now accepted and uh, has a broad number of, um, of implementations. There are some problems with it. Like, um, if you publish a message for MQTT and the server can't handle that message for any reason, there's no error message. There's no way to tell, um, immediately correlated with that message, the client, Hey, this is wrong, but the server has to cut the connection at that point. So you um, just disconnect. You don't actually send back. A, I didn't know what to do. So can that be yeah. solved with a queue or a bus? Yeah, people are trying to work around that in some ways by having some special error feedback mechanisms, but they're really difficult to deal with in super high scale systems. Hmm. So there's now a um, so the the. MQTT technical com technical committee in Oasis now has a very long list of uh, I think like twenty hot bu hot button items that they're going to work through to uh, make the protocol more um, solid. And then there's um, so that's that's one protocol. And then the, the other protocol from the messaging space is AMQP, the Advanced Message Queuing Protocol, uh -huh. um, that's providing a multiplex binary 
unbiased, so it's completely symmetric uh, transfer mechanism. So you can go and transfer as soon as you have a connection established from either party. Um, you can either party can go and open up links and transfer messages um, either way. So it's not there's no client server notion. Um, once you create to be like rivals, like why is there a battle between these two things? Why would you choose one or the other? Why do we have both? Um, well, uh, I'm not sure I want to get into that. But <laughs> 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 I mean, um, I, f- I find it fascinating that RabbitMQ will implement either one. So it's like, just so, run well, Rabbit, you'll be fine. So, uh, well, yes and no. The, you, uh-huh. you mentioned, you mentioned the exactly right product, which is an interesting one. So, so AMQP, there's two incarnations of AMQP. There's an old abandoned draft. And there's the standard. The standard is AMQP 1.0, and that's the one that has been uh, accepted in Oasis, is uh, the one that um, multiple vendors currently implement um, mm-hmm. and innovate on top of. It's the one that we implement in Service Bus um, right. and etc. And there's the old abandoned draft. And the old abandoned draft is 0.9. 0.9 is the primary protocol of RabbitMQ. So oh. it's not at all easy, is it? <laughs> no. So RabbitMQ, so RabbitMQ, those guys have a, a plugin. It's an AMQP 1.0 plugin where they are like, yeah, well, we're not seeing a lot of uptake, so we're not going to go and do a lot of investment into it. And they don't um, because their primary protocol is AMQP 0.9. Um, while, you know, Act, Apache ActiveMQ and JBoss AMQ and um, uh, Apache Cupid and uh, uh, SwiftMQ and IBM MQ Lite and uh, and our and our products and some others have moved on to AMQP 1.0. Hmm. So as everybody else is moving, um, and Rabbit and RabbitMQ is just staying where they are, it just starts to degenerate into their proprietary protocol. So effectively, if you're if you're buying into the RabbitMQ ecosystem, you're buying into a place that you can't migrate out of, um, at least not on with wire compatibility. Hmm. That, that's just that's just how it is right now. You're going to have to do a dead drop migration if you move out of it. Yes, and then and uh, so the the reason and what happened with from 0.9 to 1.0, it's not it's just not a is it's not minute changes. It is a very significant set of changes, and the reason why this happened is that the AMQP 0.9 has a very specific notion of topology. It has a very specific notion of what a queue is and then the exchanges and like it, it, it prescribes how the broker ought to look like. And MQP 1.0 is just a transfer protocol. But with the transfer protocol, there's much more flexibility because it only prescribes how you take data from one node and transfer it to the next node. But it's not prescriptive at all about what that node is. So it's possible for us to build and we're demonstrating this, right? So it's possible for us to build with AMQP a thing like Event Hubs, which looks like a queue from the front and looks more like a a database, a tape drive, effectively from from the back where you pull the data huh. out. And it's something that you it's not a queue. And with AMQP 0.9, you can't model that thing. You can't model event hubs. But with AMQP 1.0, it's very easy. IoT Hub is has a, a telemetry interface where you send data into that is that looks like a queue. It has a control, command and control channel which is modeled over AMQP 1.0, which is acts like a relay. Hmm. Um, 
it service bus has these topics um, where we have um, a lot of um, capabilities um, um, and our topics have a different shape. Arguably, I think they're easier um, than um, than the the exchanges and etc. model of that AMQP 0.9 has has encoded. And we are not forced, so we and and nobody else is forced into these into the specific topology notion that the protocol care brings with it. So the choice that was made moving from 0.9 to 1.0 in MQP and doing that work is to separate out topology and leave that to the broker or to whatever the messaging infrastructure is because they're no longer classic message brokers and the protocol. And so that the the amalgam the amalgamation of that still that's in RabbitMQ and RabbitMQ echoes the old MQP spec fairly directly, but um, a lot of the other infrastructure have moved on. There's some really cool work that has been done in Apache Cupid. They have a they have a dynamic um, uh, router um, that's part of the Cupid project now. Uh, where you can go and take effectively plug different AMQP sources and targets in and uh, and create a, a router layer, which is something else that has not been would have, wouldn't have been possible with the old protocol. So, what library do I want to use for my messaging? Um, so there's a effort that's there's a number of efforts going on. So the the biggest um, uh, joint effort that's going around going on around AMQP is in um, uh, in Apache. And Apache Cupid is a broker, but Apache Cupid Proton is a, a broker independent library. Um, it's built by the same folks who have built the Cupid, the Cupid broker. But uh, a lot of us other people are pitching in um, and helping. And, um, but those guys are so agile that sometimes uh, there's stuff that we want where we say, hey, we would like to contribute this. And they say, like, what's your idea? And uh, yeah, this, oh, we're going to do this. And then two days later, they come around with, with a fix or, or an extension uh, for wow. the next build. Um, so that's a, that's a library that's uh, supported. It's at the core it's C. Um, there's a Java version as well. Um, with uh, a messaging API, which is more um, imperative, and then they have a reactive API that's fairly new um, as well. And that speaks MQP 1.0 and has language bindings for everything, Python, PHP, Perl, uh, Go, um, all kinds of languages. There's a native one in Java. Um, we have a library um, that's coming out of Microsoft for Node.js that's uh, growing up. There's a few, uh, IBM has one for MQLite um, as well. Um, so there's a there's a growing number of libraries um, that are being kind of interop tested uh, amongst the vendors, um, which people can go and pick up. And of course, um, we're providing um, those libraries specifically for IoT Hub. Also, we're providing these libraries kind of in a supported way uh, as part of our SDK. So you'll see you can go and pick up the p the bits from um, either uh, the Cupid project directly and use them, or you can use our SDKs, but at the core, um, the bits are all going to be the same. We're all about, um, we're doing a lot of cross-platform investments. Um, so it's not about .NET only. I mean, for .NET, you can uh, totally use our client libraries. There's you know, one library that, so the service bus client, and then the other one is, um, so that's the, the, um, the service bus assembly you can get through NuGet. And then uh, we also have a project called MQP NetLite that's also living under Azure and GitHub, um, MQP NetLite. And that works for everything from the micro framework up to um, uh, the .NET, uh, the core CLR. You guys have been busy. 
Yeah, and we're not we're not stopped yet. I, <laughs> one of and one of the things that I revitalized uh, sort of uh, just before I went on. I'm I'm currently technically on vacation. <laughs> um, um, before I started was uh, before I went on vacation is uh, we have redone the the relay samples because we haven't really done uh, much to promote the relay recently even though it's growing and uh, so we're um, we've done uh, some work on the relay as well sounds great and, and so the service bus relay this can be both in the cloud or on premise like there was a I, I remember your original incarnations of the service bus which is holy man like is that 10 years ago now mm. so it's gonna have its it's gonna have its uh, 10th birthday uh, as a public thing on March, uh, sorry, on May 31st uh, next year. It's, wow. Congratulations. It is, it is it started the oldest, out as a .NET project. You know, this is just a local library. And then it got sort of pulled into Azure. No, it was a service. It was a service from the first day. It just was a service that ran under someone's desk. <laughs> right. But... But it's so service bus service bus has is now going to be 10 years old is it is by far together with ACS or with active Dire Azure active directory. Those two are the oldest public services that are, exist in the entire Azure platform because they came out of um, an incubation in the in the .NET team mm -hmm. and then um, kind of grew up as incubation and then um, kind of merged with the Red Dog, what was called Red Dog. Um, then into Azure, but it's uh, it's going to be it's the oldest it's the oldest of all the services, and it's going to be ten years um, in uh, in May, which is pretty exciting. That is very exciting, cool. Clemens. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I learn so much every time, and not just big picture, but practical knowledge, which is something I really really appreciate. Well, thank you. Yeah, great. And we'll talk to you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.